Great job, brethren. I please take your seat. I'll this time we'll have the main message for today, entitled A Gradual Descent in, into Madness by Pastor Agent Davis. A Gradual Descent into Madness. Well, thank you, Deacon Jan, and greetings, brethren. And greetings to our brethren online who are watching as well. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Uh, this week, brethren, I had the opportunity to be in the city of the Peloton husband. Does anybody know who the Peloton husband is? Oh, Larry knows. <laughs> Make sure you Google the Peloton husband ad. Uh, this was a gentleman by the name of Sean Hunter. He's a Canadian. He's from Vancouver. And he starred all of five seconds in this ad. And he lit up Twitter and the internet and social media. And he's been condemned as the face of the patriarchy. What was his crime, you ask? Well, his crime was accepting this role, a five-second role on a TV ad, advertising the Peloton uh, fitness bicycle. Uh, this bicycle cost about $2,200. Uh, plus a $40 a month subscription so that you can work out with people all over the world. And so he buys this uh, bicycle for his wife, who is about 116 pounds. And uh, so she's really happy about the bike and uh, sets it up. And then she chronicles her journey of fitness for a year. And she's waking up at 6 a.m. And just, she doesn't want to wake up, but she forces herself to get on the bike. And uh, after a year, she loses four pounds. And uh, she's just so proud of herself. And uh, the Internet just blew up. This is horrible. This is oppression. Uh, why is he in bed while she's the one getting up? And is, she telling, is he telling her that she's too fat? And on and on it went. Uh, there was complete outrage over the Peloton husband. His life, uh, he's, he's worried that his life is now destroyed um, as being part of the patriarchy. This is, uh, we're just seeing this mass hysteria over and over and this uh, selective outrage. I'll call it selective outrage because while the masses can be outraged over a husband buying a Christmas gift for his wife that's totally inappropriate, at the same time, in the same period, when we see a black man break into a Jewish grocery shop slaughter innocent people, shoot a police officer in the head, there's no outrage. When Rashida Talib tweets when this happened that this is white supremacy, and then she finds out it was actually a black man and deletes her tweet, there's no outrage. But there's outrage over the Peloton ad. When the Inspector General releases his report and shows how corrupt the top officials in the FBI were and are, and how they are taking freedom away from Americans, there's no outrage. But there's outrage over this Peloton ad. When we see uh, Pastor Murray sharing with us curriculum that involves five-year-old children writing homosexual love letters, there's no outrage. Has the world gone mad? Aldous Huxley, the author of the book Brave New World, 
About 30 years later, he wrote another book called Brave New World Revisited. This book, unlike the first one, is nonfiction. So Brave New World was fiction, and he was just trying to warn everybody, your freedom will be taken away from you, and you will love it. You will go along with it. 30 years later, he wrote Brave New World Revisited. As a, t- t- he was alarmed to say, when I wrote Brave New World, I thought this was way off in the future. Now I see it's much closer than I thought. And I just want to quote a couple of passages from Brave New World Revisited. First of all, in the introduction, he said, at the time, he said, I, I feel a good deal less optimistic than I did when I was writing Brave New World. The prophecies made in 1931 are coming true much sooner than I thought they would. So he wrote this book to warn us our freedom is being taken away from us. Uh, there's a section in the book where he's de- talking about brainwashing, and he says this. He's talking about pa- uh, Pavlov, you know, the Pavlovian experiments. He says, in the course of this, of his epoch-making experiments on the conditioned reflex, Ivan Pavlov observed that when subjected to prolonged physical or psychic stress, laboratory animals exhibit all the symptoms of a nervous breakdown. So this is uh, Pavlov's uh, realization that constant stress on these animals, he was dealing primarily with dogs, uh, they would have a nervous breakdown. He goes on to say, refusing to cope any longer with the intolerable situation, their brains go on strike, so to speak and either stop working altogether or else resort to slow down and sabotage or develop the kind of physical symptoms which, in a human being, we would call hysterical. So it's this constant stress on the physiology that drives the animals to hysteria. Uh, well, we, 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 With humans, we call it hysteria. And what we are seeing in our societies is mass hysteria. And so there's this constant stress on the human being that is causing them, their brains are shutting down. He says, dogs, he said, no, some animals are more resistant to stress than others. Dogs possessing what Pavlov called a strong excitatory constitution break down much more quickly than dogs of a merely a lively temperament. Similarly, weak inhibitory dogs reach the end of their tether much sooner than do calm dogs. But even the most stoical dog is unable to resist indefinitely. So dogs have different personalities, and some are more excitable than others. They break down very quickly. Some are weaker than others. They break down very quickly. But he said even the stoic dogs, with this constant stress even the most stoic, eventually break down. If the stress to which even the most stoical is subjected is sufficiently intense or sufficiently prolonged, he will end by breaking down as abjectly and as completely as the weakest of his kind. Pavlov's findings were confirmed with the most, in the most distressing manner and on a very large scale during the two world wars. As the result of a single catastrophic experience 
or a succession of terrors less appalling but frequently repeated, soldiers develop a number of disabling psychophysical symptoms, temporary unconsciousness, extreme agitation, lethargy, functional blindness or paralysis, completely unrealistic responses to the challenge of events, strange reversals of lifelong patterns of behavior. So these soldiers could have behaved a certain way all their life, but once they were exposed to extreme stressful situations or less stressful, but just over a long or prolonged period of time, they would break down. And things that habits that they were known for, a character that they were known for all their life would reverse. And they would do the exact opposite of predictable behavior. All, all the symptoms which Pavlov observed in his dogs reappeared among the victims of what in the First World War was called shell shock, in the second, battle fatigue. Every man, like every dog, has his own individual limit of endurance. Most men reach their limit after about 30 days, more or less, or more or less continuous stress under the conditions of modern combat. The more than averagely susceptible succumb in only 15 days. And then he said the stronger ones will take 45 days, but they all break down. And then he says this. Everyone breaks down except those that are insane. The insane do not break down because they're just operating under a completely different worldview. But everyone else breaks down. And he was using this to say that society, the way he sees this uh, loss of freedom and introduction of dictatorship, is this constant stressing of the public, constantly stressing them, and they will break down and, and move into lethargy and apathy and complete dysfunction. Even the strongest will eventually break down, except the insane. What he's missing is the understanding of the Holy Spirit. That God says to us, we must endure to the end. That all of these stressful conditions, the Christian cannot break down. We, we have to cross the finish line and we must endure to the end. And so that's what I want to talk about today. And, and before I do, I just want to quote, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, my wife grew up in a Christian home, so she knows lots of hymns. Music is very important. And music is a big part of persuasion and, and brainwashing. And sometimes, however, we, we hear moments of truth. And so I grew up with the radio on, um, and one song that I remember was Mick Jagger, Can't Get No Satisfaction. And I just want to quote the wisdom of Mick Jagger before we go on. He says, when I'm watching my TV and a man comes on and tells me how white my shirts can be, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. I think that's brilliant. There's this mass brainwashing that I, I, I must be stressed because my shirts are not as white as they can be. But wait a minute. The man that's telling me this can't be a man. 
because another man was telling me that you're not a man unless you smoke this brand of cigarettes. So this mass brainwashing, it's accelerated now. And we are being subjected to it. And we need to be outraged over the right things. If things are happening right under our noses and we don't care, then they're getting to us. If things are happening right under our noses and we turn it off, we don't want to know, they're getting to us. Because Christ says it's going to come as a snare. It's going to catch everyone off guard. So the Christians, we have to be observing. But while we're observing, we can't be stressed out. We, we can't be overwhelmed and break down. So that's what I'd like to talk about is how can we withstand this mass brainwashing and do so in a way that we are not stressed out, we do not break down like the Pavlovian proverbial dog. And I want to ultimately show us that the perspective that we need and the wisdom that we need to get through all of this is in the Song of Moses. And so we'll look at the Song of Moses in a bit of detail. But let's begin in Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And when I end, I want to end, uh, kind of unusual for me, but with some very specific, small, practical things we should be doing. And maybe as I'm going through the sermon, you could be thinking about that. What are some very specific, small things we can be doing to ensure that we can withstand the stress of living in such a dysfunctional society that we're just bombarded with bad news, bad news, bad news. What can we be doing to make sure that we are healthy and able to withstand this? Matthew 24, and I just want to pick up two verses, beginning in verse 8. Christ tells us all these are the beginning of sorrows. This, this is bad news. And, and what I, what I love about the way Christ works with us is he doesn't sugarcoat he tells us very plainly, look, this is what's going to happen. And all this bad news that I'm giving you, this is just the beginning. So clearly, from the way Christ communicates with us, he doesn't dilute. He gives us plainly, this is the bad news. And um, just so you, now that you've digested the bad news, it's going to get worse. I have more. It's going to get worse. But he gives us this because of the context. All of this is leading to some very, very good news. So we have to be able to perceive all of this bad news in the context of where it's all leading. And we, we must never lose that vision of where is all this going. So he tells us all this is the beginning of sorrows. And then notice something very specific in verse 9. He says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And notice this, And you shall be hated of all nations. And if you haven't already, underline, for my name's sake. This is the issue. That when society unravels, as society falls apart, as society goes insane, it grows to hate what Christ's name stands for. And his people stand for his name. Now come with me to Revelation 13. As we see what Aldous Huxley feared, this move towards global dictatorship and the loss of freedom and human beings being herded around like cattle, human beings made in God's image, losing their dignity, being stripped of their freedom. He obviously didn't understand the Bible, but he's, I call him a secular prophet. 
because he, whatever connections he had, he understood where society was going. But in the context of what we just read in Matthew 24, being hated for his name's sake, here in Revelation 13, beginning in verse 4, and they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto, this is insanity. They worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. Human beings made in God's image are now worshiping Satan. This is where, this is where this is heading. It's, it's a gradual descent into insanity. Satan doesn't show up and say, worship me. He deceives incrementally to the point where people are now worshiping en masse. Human beings made in God's image are worshiping the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast. In, in this admiration, who is like unto the beast? And who is able to make war with him? They, they love the power. They're drunk on the power. And they've aligned themselves with this power. This slaughtering power. They've witnessed human beings being slaughtered en masse. And they love it. They've, they've developed a taste for this mass murder. And there was given unto him a mouth... What was the mouth doing? Speaking great things, pompous things, and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and 2 months. So this is a long stretch. And again, think of Pavlovian's animals breaking down under prolonged stress. And Christ saying to Christians, you must endure to the end. So this is a very long stretch of intense, continuous stress and we must endure to the end. And he opened his mouth. Listen to what he did. He op- these are, people are worshiping him. And everyone's agreeing with him. And there's, there's this mass outrage at anything he says they should be outraged about. Everyone agrees with him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. To do what? To blaspheme his name. So at the very time when people are standing for God's name, somebody is blaspheming God's name. And incrementally, we are either building up the strength to proclaim God's name, no matter what, I don't apologize for proclaiming God's name, or we're being sucked into the perceptions of the masses, who ultimately will be sucked into the perception of blaspheming God's name. So, This little Peloton ad is the beginning of blaspheming God's name. Because it's an outrage against the Christian family. It's an outrage against husband and wife being intimate and caring for each other. This is outrageous. But pedophilia, this is good. And the high priests of pedophilia, the drag queens, nobody can touch them. They're holy. They're untouchable. This is the blaspheming of God's name, where we're heading. To blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, his dwelling place, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. So we cannot have this battle fatigue. We're going to go into battle. He's going to make war with the saints and to overcome them. But that's okay, because God gives us the whole picture. And his The same way that Satan overcame Christ and the moment of the apparent victory of the devil was actually the moment of the victory of Christ. That that's when Christ's love was most pronounced was when he said nothing at the the point of slaughter. And from that, 
the history of all mankind hinges. And in the same way, when it looks like the beast overcomes the saints, that's the hinge upon which the future of all mankind depends. He says, to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Again, this mass brainwashing is the beginning of this power over all these different societies. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Complete insanity. He means them no good. He has nothing to offer, and yet they worship him. And then you tell them about Christ. They don't want to hear about Christ. Christ is horrible. But they love this one. Whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If any man has an ear, let him hear. And then listen to verse 10. He that leads into captivity, including the beast himself, shall go into captivity. So God never gives us part of the picture. And although he doesn't dilute the bad news, he gives us the whole news. So it's the whole news. That this, all this captivity that we're seeing, the perpetrators will be led into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. And in this understanding is the patience and the faith of the saints. This is how we resist the Pavlovian breakdown because we have the full story. We have the full understanding. Come forward a couple of chapters to chapter 15 now where our brother Landon was reading where we see the victory. And I want you to notice a couple of things in the victory. And again, God always gives us the whole news. So there's good news, there's bad news, there's fake news, and we have whole news. We have the whole story. Chapter 15 and verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. It's finally over. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. God has been silent. He's been waiting. Now he's about to unleash. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast. So this is where Aldous Huxley was wrong. Not everyone breaks down. It's not inevitable. There are those empowered by the Holy Spirit who no matter how stressful the conditions become, they get the victory over the beast. And so John sees them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, he saw them stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. There's music. It's over. And it's time to rejoice and celebrate. And they're equipped with instruments of music. And what do they do? They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. So I always thought the song of Moses was historical. I always thought it had to do with ancient Israel. And what John is saying is, no, Adrian, you're wrong. Yes, Moses sang it to ancient Israel, but it has everything to do with us. It's our victory song. It's prophetic. There's content in the song of Moses that is entirely relevant to us. And it's part of our understanding of victory. It's how we resist the Pavlovian breakdown by understanding the song of Moses. 
So we sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So we have the harps, we're on the sea of glass, and there's two songs. There's the song of Moses, and there's the song of the Lamb. John doesn't reveal to us what the song of the Lamb is, but the song of Moses is in the Torah. So we can look at that to see what's in there that is in, that, that declares our victory. And they say, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of saints. So this, the saints recognize their king, but they also recognize his ways. That these seven last plagues are about to be unleashed on mankind. There's going to be tremendous suffering. He that leads into captivity will be led into captivity. And the saints are singing. And they're saying God is just and God is true. There's no unrighteousness with God. So whatever is about to be unleashed, amen. We support it. He says. Then then we ask the question in this choir, this glorious choir. Who shall not fear you? It is insane not to fear God. How is it possible that human beings made in God's image don't fear him? They blaspheme him. How did they get into this state of insanity? Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? At a time when the whole world was joining the beast in blaspheming, God's name. The saints proclaimed God's name. And we were hated for proclaiming God's name, and we did not back down. And now that it's all over, we have the upper hand. And our question is, who would not fear and glorify, fear you and glorify your name? For you only are holy. I know the beast wanted us to believe he was holy. And the beast wanted us to believe the dragon was holy. And Insane human beings made in your image fell for it, but we didn't fall for it. You alone are holy. For all nations, without exception, shall come and worship before you, for your judgments are made manifest. And it's this understanding of God's judgments that we will find in the Song of Moses. And let's go there. Let's go to Deuteronomy 31 where we're introduced to the Song of Moses. And you remember from last week, uh, Deacon Jan's sermon, that among ancient Israel were the mixed multitude. And the mixed multitude were not Israel. They were just among. The promises were to Israel. Today, that pattern, you know, the pattern sort of set down that the, na- the notion that Gentiles can be amongst Israel and can be grafted in, But also it sets down the pattern that among us, spiritual Israel, spiritual Jews, there can be a mixed multitude. That is to say, people are not baptized, but they're among us. And the same way anciently, they would not be included in the promises. They could benefit from being in the society, but the promises were to Israel. And in the same way, this victory is to the baptized saints. The unbaptized will not be a part of this victory. And so it's going to be a tremendous, uh, it should be for all of us, a tremendous celebration 
when one repents and chooses to be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit and stand up for the name of God and be a part of this victory. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 30. And Moses spoke in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. So like David, Moses was a psalmist. And he wrote this song and he put it to music. And, you know, to this day, I can still sing, can't get no satisfaction. You know, some words that you put to music and it's memorable. Well, he put this to music so that it would be remembered. And, and you know, hopefully in our homes, we have hymns and we have spiritual songs that our children grow up singing and remembering. And the message is embedded in the song and it's memorable and it, and it bolsters the mind. Well, that's what he was doing for Israel. To take this song so that it wouldn't be forgotten. We don't have the music, but we have the lyrics. And there's something in this that contains the wisdom and the understanding of our victory. So let's read this knowing that this is what we're going to be singing. I don't know what the music will be, but here are the words. We're going to be singing these words at the point of victory with a, with a massive glorious choir. And I would say, I think if it was set to music, the first part of this song would be very mournful. It would create deep feeling of sadness and regret. And then at some point, I think the music would change to the sound of victory and overcoming. So let's read it together and understand the wisdom that Moses wanted to give to Israel, which ultimately spiritual Israel will sing when Christ returns. Verse 1, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 1. Give ear, listen, O you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth. The words of my mouth. So the, the psalm begins calling two witnesses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now Moses calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses to what he's about to say. My doctrine, my teaching, shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew. This is good news. This is healthy. This is nourishing. You think of uh, a dry land and then the rain falls on it and all the, 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 the uh, greenery just comes up and it's verdant because of the rain. That's what Moses says this is going to be. He promises us that this teaching shall drop as the rain and my speech shall distill as the dew. This is going to give us life. There's wisdom in here that we're going to be able to overcome when we understand what's in the Song of Moses. As the small rain upon the tender herb and as the showers upon the grass. So we are the tender herb. We are the grass. And this teaching is now going to fall upon us and cause us to grow up and be strong. Why? Because I will publish. What will he publish? What will this great teacher of Israel publish? I will publish the name of the Lord. Again, the beast blasphemes the name of the Lord. The saints proclaim the name of the Lord. At the point of victory, we ask, who will not glorify the name of the Lord? And now in this song, Moses says he's going to publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe you greatness unto our God. 
This is the praise we have. It's just, it's just, his greatness is so overwhelming. He is the rock. His work is perfect. And this is why he's not ashamed to give us the bad news. He lays it all out. It's undiluted. Why? Because his work is perfect. And if we have the wisdom of the Song of Moses, then we will understand why his work is perfect. And there can be no criticism of him. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. There is no questioning what he does. Verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. You can almost hear Moses' pain. He's about to die. Because of them, he cannot go into the promised land. He can see it, but he can't go. And now he's a, a couple of days later, he'll be dead. And he's seeing the glory of God. And he's looking at the children of Israel. And he's saying, God's, God, God is perfect. His judgment is perfect. His ways are perfect. His children, that's another story. They have corrupted themselves. Remember, they're, they're to go into the promised land and not be corrupted, to bring the glory of God. Instead, they've corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay? The, is this how you repay the Lord? O oh, foolish people and unwise, is not he your father that has brought you? Has he not made you and established you? This is the Song of Moses. There's something in here that we have to understand because this is what we'll be singing when Christ returns. Remember the days of old, he says. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. So so they know, they firsthand experienced the miraculous intervention of God and how he pulled them out of slavery and abject poverty and oppression and made them a nation. Go and ask them about it. When the Most High, interesting verse, when the Most High divided the nations, divided to the nations their inheritance. So all the nations will have their inheritance. And I know uh, George Soros and the like don't want nations. Everything is just one global village. God wants nations. And there will always be nations. There will be a nations for eternity. God is the one that creates borders. Satan is the one that does the opposite. He says, when, when the Most High did this, when he divided the nations, their, their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, He set the bounds of the people or the borders of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Now, why would he do that? Because he created this nation to be the priest class. This nation will teach all the other nations. All the nations will interface with God through the priest nation. And so when he divided to them their inheritance, he set their boundaries according to the number of the children of Israel. 
And then he explains it in verse 9. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. So God is coming to inherit Israel. And the nations have their inheritance. And they will interface with God and glorify God through the priestly nation. This is the design from the beginning. And this is what we will be singing at the end. He found him, he found Israel in a desert land. And in the waste howling wilderness, that's where they were. He led him about, he instructed him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. So throughout those wilderness years, throughout all of the rebellion and hostility towards God, God never recanted on his promise to Abraham. He kept Israel as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, spreads abroad her wings, takes them, bears them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him. There's a very special relationship between God and Israel. It's a very exclusive and special relationship. And there was no strange God with him. So it was just Israel and Jehovah. He made him ride on the high places. So now Moses is looking forward into the promised land. And he says he's going to make Israel ride on the high places of the earth, that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. So it almost looks impossible, but God makes the land flourish for his people. But Jeshurun or Yeshurun waxed fat and kicked. So Jeshurun, it would be like saying, um, I blessed my sweetheart and my sweetheart betrayed me. So Jeshurun is like a, a pet name. It's an intimate uh, appellation. It's to say, this, this is my honey, my, the, the apple of my eye. I looked after her. And in looking after her, because I, I, oh, sorry, let me, I skipped a verse, verse 14. Let me go back and just read this from verse 13. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. This is what he did. He found him in the desert, but then he made him ride on the high places of the earth that he might eat the increase of his fields. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, butter of cattle and milk of sheep with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat, and you did drink the pure blood of the grape. But Yeshurun waxed fat. So when you're blessed like this, this kind of prosperity, you put on weight. Jeshurun, the apple of God's eye, waxed fat and kicked. You are waxen fat. You are grown thick. You are covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. This is the song of Moses. This is what we'll be singing when Christ returns. This is what Moses takes his understanding, his wisdom, and as a poet, puts it in a form that can be sung so that it can be remembered and deeply appreciated. He could have just said these things. He put them in in Hebrew in poetry. Jeshurun waxed fat and, and, and kicked against God and forsook God, which made him the rock of his salvation. 
They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils. Can you believe this? He found them. They were in the wilderness. They were in the desert. They were going to die. And he saved them and he made them a great nation. And this is how they repay him. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God. That's too, it's too much effort to sacrifice to God. Let's sacrifice to devils. To gods whom they knew not. To new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. And, and although he's writing here to ancient Israel, I think we just have to look around today. Which are the nations that are most prosperous? Which nations have waxed fat? That there's a prosperity that's just unprecedented. And then they've turned and they've rejected their heritage. And they'll praise any other God except Christ. Even the drag queen high priest will be glorified in the school with the children, but not Christ. So the DNA is the same. They sacrificed unto devils, verse 17, not to God. To gods whom they knew not. They'll even bring in foreign gods. And let's worship that God. Let's all say Allahu Akbar. But dare not say glory to Christ. To new gods that came newly up. Whom your fathers feared not. They never heard of these gods. Of the rock that begat you. are You are unmindful. You have forgotten God that formed you. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and daughters. And he said, and these are chilling words, Moses is dying, and this is his song. God said, I will hide my face from them. I, I think this is the most chilling line in the song. That God said, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to hide my face from them. So they're just, they're doing so well. They think they don't need me. They have no understanding that I, I have underpinned their success. This kind of success is not possible. You were in a desert. Now you're the most glorified nation on the planet and you've forgotten me. You know what? I'm going to hide my face. I don't think there's a more chilling line in the song than this. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. So let's see what happens when God withdraws himself. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. So they've provoked me with that which isn't a God. I'm going to provoke them with them that are not a people. The only people that matter, the only nation that really matters on the earth is Israel. And from Israel, all the other nations are blessed. But Israel has waxed fat and turned their back on God with with those that are not God. So God says, okay, I'm going to provoke you with those that are not a nation. Which means that people are going to rise up claiming they have a God and that their God is the true God. And with this nonsense, they're going to put down Israel. And God is going to provoke Israel to jealousy 
with people that are not a people. They're going to pretend they're a people, but they're not. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, a nonsensical nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger. Actually, maybe this is even more chilling. Put the two lines together. I'm going to withdraw from them. I'm going to hide my face. And a fire is kindled in my anger. And shall burn unto the lowest hell. And shall destroy the earth with her increase. And set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap mischiefs upon them. I will spend my arrows upon them. God says these are my arrows. So we read in Revelation that the the first um, rider on the white horse is a bowman. He goes forth conquering and to conquer with arrows. And God says these are my arrows. I'm going to destroy them with a people that are not a people. And these arrows are these are targeted um, attacks. That God is behind it. And this is what the saints understand. They shall be burnt with hunger. And Deacon Jan, I, I was just so touched by this message that he gave and gave this understanding that his father gave him. In starvation, there's no morality. That the greatest evil is starvation. And God says, I, they shall be burned with hunger. And so we saw the example of the woman boiling her son and sharing him and then expecting the other mother to boil her son. And devoured with a burning heat, and with bitter destruction, I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them, with the poison of serpents of the dust, the sword without, and terror within. So, you're going to go to war, and you're going to be slaughtered overseas, and you're going to bring the enemy inside your own nation, and you'll be terrorized from within. The sword without and terror within shall destroy both the young man and the virgin. The suckling also with the man of gray hairs. I said I would scatter them into corners. I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men. God is so furious with his people. And, and this is not just Judah. This is, this is all Israel. And then he says this. So the, now, now the song begins to turn. And why does it turn? So there's a, there's a, there's a judgment pronounced on Israel, which is so severe. And this is what Moses is foreseeing before he goes to the grave. And it's so severe. And the song is so, when I was reading this, I said, like, is this the song we're going to be singing? It, it kind of feels depressing to me. But there's wisdom in this. There's a, there's a godly level of understanding that the saints have that they can put the whole story together. And now the story begins to turn. God is going to destroy them. And then he says that they would cease, Israel would cease from among men. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries, that is Israel's adversaries, should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, our hand is high, and the Lord has not done all this. So, so this is the one, like, this is Israel's saving grace. That if God just withdrew himself completely, and then the nations could cry out, Allahu Akbar, for example, 
and that Allah has done this. And Jehovah Ye- saying, wait a minute, these are my arrows. I did this. And so they completely destroy Israel and Judah. And they give no credit to Jehovah. This is what God fears. And this would, this would be uh, a disaster for all mankind. Because God wants all mankind to understand the story. God wants all mankind to understand the whole news. And that this chapter of bad news was the Lord's design. So he says, So the, the, the enemy, verse 27, would give themselves credit and their false gods credit. And God says, I can't have this. For they are a nation void of counsel. So they have all these holy scriptures and this narrative. And God says, it's complete foolishness. It has no wisdom. They are, they are a foolish nation. They're a nation void of counsel. Neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise. They claim to be wise, but I wish that they really were wise, that they understood this, this wisdom in the Song of Moses, that they would consider their latter end. So hold your place here and let's consider their latter end. And let's see that in Zechariah 14. Just take a moment to consider their latter end. And in Zechariah 14... And verse 19, when this is all coming to an end, Zechariah prophesies, This shall be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Wisdom is in Judah, not in these foreign nations. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. So everything is going to be holiness to the Lord in Jerusalem. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take them and see therein. And listen to this. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So that tells us that these Canaanites are not ancient, or not only ancient. That in the end time, they overrun the Lord of the hosts, the, 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 the tabernacle of the Lord. They blaspheme the tabernacle of the Lord. And the Canaanites, we call them Palestinians today, and they say it's their right because they're descended from the Canaanites, and they have the Canaanite culture, which Israel should have removed, and now they have the upper hand. And God is saying, this foolishness will stop. And never, ever, ever again for eternity will a Canaanite be in the, in the dwelling place of the Lord. Now hold your place in Zechariah 14. Let's just pop back to, to the Song of Moses. We'll come back to Deuteronomy, to Zechariah 14 in a minute. Deuteronomy 32. 29. <laughs> they think they have spiritual wisdom. And Moses prophesies before the, the Israel even went into the promised land that these pagans, these Canaanites, he wishes they really were wise and that they understood they would consider their latter end. Verse 30. How should one chase a thousand? So how does one pagan chase a thousand Israelites? 
Or how did two put 10,000 Israelites to flight? Except there, that is, the Israelites' rock had sold them. And the Lord had shut them up. So, so when you see the Israelite nations collapse in front of these Canaanites, they should not give themselves the credit, nor should they give their God the credit. The only reason this is possible is these are the Lord's arrows. For their rock, their rock is not as our rock. So they have a rock, they have scriptures, they have wisdom. It's nonsense. Their rock is not as our rock. And this is where the music changes and it's more triumphant. Even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. They're filthy. All their wisdom, when you really look under the covers, they're filthy. They're immoral. They have the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For their, for the day of calam, the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things that shall come upon them make haste. So Moses has the whole story. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants. He never lets go of Israel. This is a covenant and it's never broken by God. He's committed to Israel. So after all of this filth of Israel, God raises up these enemies of Israel to cleanse Israel and he shall judge his people. And separate the sheep from the goat. So, so through this process, the true Israelites will emerge. And repent himself for his servants. When he sees that their power is gone, so the saints are overcome by the beast, the power of the holy ones is shattered, and when God sees this, that's when he'll act. And there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, where are their gods? Where is their rock in whom they trusted? which did eat the fat of the sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. See now that I, even I am he. This is what God has been trying to negotiate with Israel. He's been trying to get Israel to understand. And we who proclaim his name, this is our message, that there's only one true God. And God says, see now, he's speaking to his people. See now that I, even I am he. And there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. So all of this slaughter, even though they're giving the credit to their God, Jehovah is saying, I'm the one that did it. I'm the, I slaughtered my own. You, you drove me to slaughter my own people, to drive you to repentance. So I kill, but I also make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven. This is God. God is swearing. I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword, and I love this verse because it speaks of a whetstone, that you take a stone with water and sharpen your sword. If I wet my glittering sword, 
and my hand take hold on judgment. I will render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me. So them that hate me, they hate Israel, they hate Israel's God, and God, the, the enemies of Israel, God says they're my enemies. They hate me, and I will reward them that hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. This is their end. And my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. And then he says, Rejoice, O you nations, with his people. So all the nations now are told, Rejoice with Israel. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. So the whole time that Israel is being subjected to all of this, God has never forgotten, these are my people. And so he's using the wickedness and the evil of the wicked. He's harnessing that to punish his people. But then he's coming to rescue his people and to punish these people for their, they, they worship the dragon. They worship Satan. And so he's going to punish them for that and never once break his covenant with Abraham. So now the nations are finally told that the, the, the veil has lifted and they're told to rejoice with Israel. And hold your place here as we just finish this song and go back to Zechariah 14. And here in verse 13, it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem. So God is now empowering Judah to fight. Judah shall fight at Jerusalem, so they're going to fight the Canaanites and push them back out. And the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. They're bringing their offerings. They've acknowledged that the God of Israel, the God of Judah, this is the true God. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of the donkey, and of all the beasts that shall, ba- that shall be in these tents as this plague. Verse 16. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even, even these, these people who hated Jerusalem, even them, they shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. That whatever they were doing was nonsense. Whatever wisdom they thought they had, complete foolishness, tomfoolery. And now they're acknowledging the God of Israel, and the worship system of the God of Israel. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth, the whole earth, that have been divided according to the tribes of Israel, if anybody does not come up unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So let's go back to the Song of Moses and finish there. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, Rejoice! It's the Feast of Tabernacles, you nations. Rejoice, O you nations, with his people. 
There, there is a people of God that have been separated from everybody else. And this is to your glory. This is to your benefit. God is God. He does what he wants. And he's chosen to rescue mankind from the devil through Israel. So this is, a, this is great rejoicing. Rejoice, O you nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful not just to his people, but to his land. He has land on, there's, there's real estate on earth that belongs to God. And Canaanites are not welcome there. How dare them try, that, why, how, who, what insanity led them to think that this could be their land? It's God's land. And he wants his people established there. And then he wants the nations to come and worship him through the leadership of his people on the land. So even though the land is defiled and the people are defiled, he will be merciful unto his land and to his people. And that's the end of the song, verse 44. And Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the ears of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun, Joshua, you could say Jesus, God saves. So Yeshua and Moses sang this song. And Moses made an end of speaking all these words to Israel. And he said unto them, set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day. So he put it to music so that they would remember. He put it in poetry so that it would be memorable. And then he told them, don't ever forget this. Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which you shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this Torah. And so now we find ourselves in this increasing era of Torahlessness, of insanity. And yet the children of Israel must remember the song of Moses. We must be wedded to the Torah. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. It's our life. The wisdom in the song of Moses is our life. And when Christ returns, we sing this song. And we acknowledge all of this bloodshed, all of this horror. God's ways are perfect. He's just. Everything he does, he does according to Torah. And now we understand Torah. So we can look at all of this bad news. And rather than break down, rather than become hysterical, we can truly be stoic and proclaim his name and proclaim his righteousness and understand that the world, God sees the world through the lens of Israel. God sees the world through the lens of Abraham and the covenant that he has with Abraham. And that's reality. So in this narrative warfare where everybody's spinning a story, we stick to Torah. We stick to the covenant. This is not a vain thing. This song is not a simple thing for you. It's your life. And through this thing, you shall prolong your days in the land. Through this understanding, you will not have a Pavlovian breakdown. When all of this stress is happening, this is how we prolong our days. Where you go over Jordan to possess it. We are going to possess this land. This land is ours. I want to just reinforce as we begin to wrap up here, 
that this song is not to be forgotten. It's not there anciently, and as we move into the future, we forget it. We bring it with us into the future. And when Christ returns, we sing it. And so if you look at 1 Corinthians 10, you'll see the Apostle Paul dip into Torah and more or less say the same thing. And then we'll conclude. In 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ and Moses sang about that rock. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples to the intent. There's an intention why these things were recorded. To the intent, we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And that is the agenda today. I was on the plane yesterday coming back, and I'm coming back from the bathroom, and everybody's glued to these entertainment screens. And a scene, somebody's watching Elton John, an old man, he's between 65 and 70, and the scene in front of him as he sits there and digests it, it's just complete disgusting, disgraceful. And this is for public consumption now? This would never be 30 years ago. Where have we gotten to that this is now acceptable and a child could get up to go to the bathroom and come back and see this disgusting behavior? Where are we? And they're cultivating, they're cultivating this appetite that things are not normal. We cannot, we cannot want normal things. Adults want children, men want men, women want women, everybody wants what's ugly. And there's no celebration in beauty. How did we get here? It's all gradual. It's this gradual descent into madness. And we're being warned that God's own people lusted for evil things. And so it's recorded here that we should read this and learn from it to the intent that we don't get swept up in this mass brainwashing. Neither be you idolaters, as were some of, some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to commit debauchery. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. God isn't joking. These are his people. And the Song of Moses shows that God will punish his people to drive repentance. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Neither murmur, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition. I, I don't know how somebody can read this and say, don't worry, once saved, always saved. 
you got nothing to worry about. Paul's saying the exact opposite. These things were written so that we would worry and not fall into this trap. So all these are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So everything that's happening today is no surprise for God. But he's given us what we need, the wisdom we need to navigate all of this. Therefore, let him that thinks he stand take heed. There's no one safe, always safe. Don't Don't fall for that. Take heed lest ye fall. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. And that's what the Song of Moses is all about. The faithfulness of God. He will never forget his covenant. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. These are very clever people that are the architects of society that are running the societal programming. And Satan, they're at Satan's beck and call. So we're up against some, some terrible programs. And they're, they're being introduced slowly, gradually, and they're overtaking people. It's, it's amazing to see human beings outraged over the Peloton husband and silent over the assassination of law enforcement. Over pedophilia. Silent, no big deal. Over the Peloton. Oh, yeah, yeah, we need to rise up over the Peloton ad. Are these human, what's happened? We can resist this. And he will give us a way of escape as long as we stick to the wisdom of Torah. Therefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. So as we conclude, brethren, I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes 9. And again, what we see in Revelation 13 is global insanity. Human beings made in the image of God, worshipping Satan, worshipping the dragon. What we see in Deuteronomy 32 is national insanity. The very children of Israel, the children of God, who God strengthens and prospers, turn on him. And worship every other God except him. Although he's the author of their existence and their prosperity. So we go from global insanity to insanity of God's own people. And it's all gradual. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing today that we wouldn't have done 30 years ago? And are we... Or what are we doing today that we wouldn't have done three weeks ago? And are we an entrance of this insanity into the congregation, into the church? Are we lowering our standards? And as we lower our standards, influencing others in the church to lower their standards? Or are we keeping the big picture in mind and resisting this global influence? And keeping the standards of God. So that when he returns, we are among those that proclaim his name no matter what. I want to just give seven tips of things we can do 
to ensure that this constant bombardment of stress, psychological stress, designed to break us down, like the Pavlovian dog, eventually even the strongest breaks down and is just as broken down as the weakest. What are things that we can do to ensure that we can withstand this stress? Number one, get enough sleep and exercise. We're human. We're physical. If you're not sleeping, in fact, that's a great technique of brainwashers to uh, not allow people to get sufficient sleep. The brain doesn't work properly when we're not sleeping. And when we're not, when we're not exercising, the, the stress hormones build up. We need to exercise, flush those stress hormones and have the positive uh, neurotransmitters in our bloodstream. Number two, eat right. Be careful, brethren. There's so much processed food, so much sugar. Uh, let's, let's make sure we're eating nourishing food. Again, we're physical beings. And if we can eat properly, our physiology will be optimized. Number three, improve your environment. Surround yourself with beauty. We, we are being sold on the attractiveness of ugliness. Everything's ugly. No one's taking any time. Even in a physical appearance. Everything's just ugly and disheveled. Let's do the opposite. Let's walk like children of God. Make an effort at home. Keep it clean and orderly. Again, if your, pla- if your place is disorderly, that creates stress. You walk into a disorderly place, it's stressful. You walk into a place that's open and spacious and clean, you feel better. So all of these uh, stressors, as they build up, it's just that, um, what's that, the straw that broke the camel's back. It's just one more piece of horrible news, and we finally break down. But if we can just keep the stress low, then we can digest the news and stay on top of the news and not break down. Number five. Oh, sorry, number four. Dress with dignity and deportment. Again, that's so your environment is your physical environment. Surround yourself with things that make you happy, be cleanliness and orderliness. Uh, number four, dress with dignity. The world has gone mad. Everything's ugly and messy. Number five, live joyfully at home. When you walk through the door in your home, you're home. Get up and greet each other at the door. Be excited that your, your spouse is home. Do that special thing for the spouse. Take time to look in each other's eyes. Or not just spouse, but family members. Whoever is at home with you. If you live alone, pick up the phone. Talk to people. Have good relationships. I, I can't understand people who argue with each other and fight each other. and So stress outside, and then you come home and there's stress at home as well. Let's not do that to each other. Let's, let's make it joyful at home. I come home and my wife just does special things and it's just so great to be home. Have music at home, nice scents, pictures that make you happy. A Peloton bike if that makes you happy. <laughs> Number six, get out of debt. Get out of debt. So don't get the Peloton bike if you can't afford it. Don't get the Peloton bike on credit. Uh, we've got this, this it's part of the system. Have people up to their eyeballs in debt so they're afraid they'll lose their job. And if they're afraid they'll lose their job, they won't speak. They'll, they'll be slaves. And so let's get our independence by getting out of debt. Number seven, 
Stir up the Holy Spirit. Pray, we fast, we fellowship, we study, we stir up the Spirit that this, this is the missing, this is what uh, Pavlov couldn't see, this is what Aldous Huxley couldn't see, and this is what Jesus Christ tells us we have. This is what he promises to give us. He gives us the whole, yes, there's bad news, but he gives us the whole story and the Holy Spirit to to educate us and, and strengthen us. So we saw the blasphemy of God's name and yet the strength to glorify and proclaim God's name. And we even see that in the Song of Moses. Let's conclude here in Ecclesiastes 9, where again we can see Solomon giving us this wisdom of how to live. How to live. How do we live in a world that's going insane? And how do we maintain our sanity? Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 3. This is an evil thing among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yes, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live. So everyone's going to die. And yet the sons of men act as if they're not going to die. And they're just descending into greater and greater levels of insanity. And after that, they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. So they can choose to live however they want to live. But it's gone now. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Okay, with all of this, what is the advice? Go your way. Eat your bread with joy. Live with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God now accepts your works. Let your garments be always white. So don't wear dirty clothes. Not in this society. We don't have to do that. Dress nicely. And it doesn't have to be expensive, but clean. Let your garments be always white. And let your head lack no ointment. It's nice to have a nice hairstyle. If you have hair, I don't, I don't have hair. I can't do it. You guys can do it. <laughs> have a nice hairstyle. Let your head lack no ointment. Like rejoice. Fuss over yourself a little bit. Fuss over your loved one. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of the life of your vanity. Time is running out. Why would we choose to live any other way? And so this man buys his wife a Peloton bike. That's living, that's living joyfully. Oh, this is outrageous. You know, you, you live joyfully with your spouse. It's your life. That's a great gift that we have. The Christian family. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your, of the life of your vanity, which he has given you under the sun. And we don't know how much time we have, but let's live joyfully at home. All the days of your vanity, for that is your portion in this life and in your labor, which you take under the sun. And then let's apply verse 10 spiritually. 
there's work to be done. It's a stressful work. And we will not break down from proclaiming the name of the Lord because we are taking these other steps to be healthy human beings. We're not on the verge of nervous breakdown. We're healthy. And so when the stress comes, we can withstand it. So there's a work to be done. That work, whatsoever your hand finds to do, and so as we're baptized, we're recruited into this work. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, without exception, without apology. We don't, we don't need approval from the masses that are brainwashed. Do it with your might. Because the opportunity, the window of opportunity is closing. And there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you go. As the world descends into madness, let's stand up for God. Let's be pillars of nobility. And let's proclaim the name of the Lord. I'll ask you, brethren, to stand and we'll close.